This is the SciDevNet podcast for science news and views on global development. music you've just heard comes from a remote place that will soon be lost in the Pacific Ocean. Now, the people who lived there for generations want to make sure it won't be forgotten. With Kiribati being located so far away, it could be so easy to think, who cares? But I suppose the thing is, Kiribati, it matters to me. In today's podcast, we put a spotlight on the endangered ecosystem of small island developing states, otherwise known as SIDS for short. In 30 years from now, as a result of climate change and rising sea levels, some of the world's smallest archipelagos will sink beneath the ocean and disappear, together with their unique biodiversity and the culture of the people who live there. They are very diverse, so physically, socially, culturally, economically, and really the options for adaptation to climate change for those nations is are very limited. The IPCC actually finds that for these islands, climate change poses an existential threat. Scientists are investigating what's happening in the SIDS in the hope of learning lessons for the future of global coastal systems that will be affected by rising sea levels in the next few decades and they're discovering that much can be learned from simply talking to local people. I'm doing my best to assist the islanders on their own terms in ter- for their communities to deal with climate change. But I'm learning immensely. Because what the small islands are facing now is what we are going to face in the future. And stay with us to discover the story of the mysterious musician who will accompany us on a journey to a small group of islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, called... Ding! Kiribati. Let's say it together one more time. Kiribati. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast. I'm John Eskom with a special programme on small island developing states, SIDS for short. In the studio with me is Victoria Burns, the author of the film Sina, which means my mother. Welcome, Victoria. Thanks for coming in. Hi. Victoria, tell us a bit more about you and a bit more about your mother. Well, um, I'm a documentary filmmaker and earlier this year I made a little short portrait documentary about my mum um, and she's called Marista um, and um, she's originally from a group of islands um, out in the central Pacific called Kiribati. Um, beyond my personal family history, Kiribati at the moment's been given a lot of um, press, I guess, because scientists have predicted uh, Kiribati as being one of the first places to disappear with rising sea levels. So I sort of made this portrait documentary in tribute to my mother and sort of to raise awareness about where she's from originally and what's happening out there. So the mysterious musician we've heard uh, just before um, uh, is, in fact, your mother. It is. (laughs) Um, And why did you want to tell her story to the world? Yes, so I've been wanting to make a film about Kiribati's frontline position with regards to rising sea levels for a while. Um, And there was a competition called Action for Climate Change, which um, happened early in the year, and it sort of coincided, so it kind of was the perfect catalyst to kind of go about doing it. Um, the biggest thing was my mum's, I guess, naivety about climate change because she kind of was confused 
what the difference between rising sea levels to do with climate change rather than tsunamis which is <laughs> really really heartbreaking actually but so that was something that kind of came up in our in our interviews um and i think is quite reflective a lot of my mum's family in kiribati as well so yeah the next clip is me just talking a bit about kiribati and what what it means to me and sort of just a few facts about it Kiribati has a population of over 100,000. It's made up of 32 atolls and one raised coral island. The islands are located in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, halfway between Australia and Hawaii. According to scientists, Kiribati will disappear under rising sea levels in the next 30 to 50 years. Kiribati is so remote from England that when I last visited, it took over 23 hours to get there, flying from London to Los Angeles, then on to Nandi, Fiji, where I took one last plane to the capital island, Tarawa. With Kiribati being located so far away, it could be so easy to think, who cares? But I suppose the thing is, Kiribati, it matters to me. For me and my family, Kiribati is my mum's homeland. It's where her family live, where my parents met, and where I was born and lived for the first six years of my life. A clip there from Victoria Byrne's film about her mother, who comes from the small state of Kiribati. Now, Victoria, you decided to tell the story of your mum to show how climate change affects the lives of real people and why it's not just a matter of science or politics. How do you think people in Kiribati are reacting to the knowledge that their homeland will soon be gone? That's a really good question. Um, I was in Kiribati last June and... When I was out there, uh, I stayed mainly on the main island of Tarawa. There's lots of different islands in Kiribati. And I can only really speak personally, but I think, as I mentioned earlier, there's sort of a vague awareness amongst my relatives that I think they can see that the tide's encroaching, but they can't really grasp or they don't have the Western name of things. There is, of course, the issue of... It's such an enormous idea that a whole nation can be lost is it partly that that one cannot almost conceive of such a thing genuinely happening yeah I think the idea of them moving is like just baffling almost beyond reality yeah yes and then also for a lot when I've spoken about it to my uncle and the older generations they just they'd rather they they're sort of quite it's quite grim, but they're, you know, they say they'd, they'd never leave Kiribati, they'd rather the water comes over them. So that's quite, yeah, it's quite stark. What's the final message from the film? I think the final message from my film is me talking about what it means without, without there being a physical um, Kiribati there anymore. So I talk about what it'd be like if I couldn't take my children and future generations of our family when there's no Kiribati. I think what makes me sad is one day in the future I hope to have children and I want to be able to take them to their grandmother's home island and maybe there'll be nothing to show them and only a few people will remember this stretch of sea that was once Kiribati. So, 
Let this film be a keepsake, a memento where Kiribati can be forever remembered, frozen in time, where Kiribati matters, not to be forgotten. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast with me, John Escombe. This month, we've been putting the spotlight on small island developing states, a fragile ecosystem that also acts as a barometer of the impact of climate change on coastal regions. Well, our guest has been Victoria Burns, and we've been travelling with her to Kiribati, where local people are starting to ask questions about the future of their homeland. Here in London, SciDev.net multimedia producer Lou Del Bello put these questions to Elizabeth Carabine, a researcher at the Overseas Development Institute and author of a study that summarises the latest findings of climate science in relation to the SIDS. The paper, called the IPCC's Fifth Assessment Report, What's in it for small island developing states looks at the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The main findings of the IPCC are that the climate science is very difficult for small island developing states, which I'll refer to as SIDS. These are areas that are disparate across the globe. There's several regions where small island developing states occur. So there's very difficult to get, firstly, observational data that uh, can indicate trends in in rainfall or temperature rise from these areas of the world and also very difficult to to produce models that can tell us what might happen next. So that's one of the messages from working group one of the climate science. Um, other messages are that the in common with other areas of the world, climate change has been occurring and will continue to occur in the coming decades, whichever path we take in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, these impacts are already being felt in SIDS and the risks will continue to rise for them, particularly because of their exposure in terms of coastal zones. What kind of risks are we talking about? The IPCC have found with high confidence that sea levels are rising and have been rising over the past century. But for small island developing states, not only is, is sea level rising, but it's rising faster. For example, in the Western Pacific, sea level is rising at, at four times the rate of the global average. Um, also, a lot of small island developing states are located in tropical zones and tropical areas where cyclones and hurricanes are common occurrences. So any change in the frequency or um, intensity of cyclones or extreme events will be felt very keenly by small island developing states. Similarly, they're, they're so small in area that changes in Rainfall patterns will be felt. They're particularly susceptible to freshwater shortage. Um, any change in rainfall patterns will lead to um, problems with freshwater availability for these states. So what will happen in 20 years' time? Will this island sink in water? Will they disappear? And what will happen to the people who live there? One of the most important findings of the fifth assessment report for small island states is that they are very diverse. So physically, socially, culturally, economically, they're a very diverse group to look at. Um, so within that group, there are some, mostly 
atoll nations, which are highly vulnerable, and they're highly exposed to sea level rise and rising temperatures. And those um, states include Kiribati and Tuvalu and the Republic of the Marshall Islands. And really, the options for adaptation to climate change for those nations is very limited. The IPCC actually finds that for these islands, climate change poses an existential threat. So the future of their nation is not possible with the changing climate as early as 2050, 2030. So their options really are limited to quite drastic action like migration. So for example, recently we've seen the government of Kiribati buying land in Fiji to start to plan for the relocation of their population. Um, Other suggestions have been made for the population of the Republic of the Marshall Islands to move maybe to the United States, to Australia, Obviously, these are very drastic solutions for people who have very, very tight cultural and social ties to their land. Is it still worth studying what is happening in the seeds if there's no future for them? Well, I would like to just restate that there is a hugely diverse group of SIDS, so it's a relatively small proportion that are at risk, an existential risk. Um, It is definitely worth studying what's going on in them. Firstly, to understand the kinds of choices that are available to them now um, in terms of their development, their dependence on fossil fuels and shift towards low carbon growth. Because they're quite small, they are able to make quite rapid and um, decisions about their development and governance. So there are lessons to be learned from some of the adaptation measures and some of the the, um, combined mitigation and development and adaptation measures that they're taking now. Can you give us an example of these adaptation measures? Yeah, sure. So I was recently actually in Samoa for the UN Small Island Developing States Conference, and there I was able to see the unveiling of um, anticyclonic wind turbines that were financed by the United Arab Emirates and which are going to provide secure access to energy for half of one of the islands in Samoa. Um, And this not only helps to develop the communities that will have secure access to energy, it also reduces their dependence on fossil fuels, um, which are very expensive for SIDS and and does um, impede their ability to respond to development and climate change challenges. In Fiji, for example, forest conservation is being heavily promoted, so to access carbon finance opportunities, um, also to sequester carbon from the atmosphere in forest ecosystems, so therefore contributing to mitigation, um, but also increasing freshwater capture and reducing the risk of landslides, which are adaptation measures. Is there a lesson that the whole world can learn from what's happening now in the small islands, developing states? Yeah, if you speak to the people of the small island developing states, they tell you that they have been waiting for this to happen for 25 years and trying to tell us as a global community this is happening. I think for us looking in from the developed countries or other countries in the world, it's quite shocking. Actually, when you hear heads of state talking about um, forced migration and you know loss of their land and livelihoods, it seems... Uh, like climate change is really upon us and that is the case and it's not so far off for other vulnerable countries to start to feel the physical effects like um, 
the sea level rise and so on on coastal zones. The UK has a large coast, um, but also the effects that are interconnected throughout the globe. So food security is going to become an issue for everybody. Um, security generally, water scarcity, these are the things that are coming. And by 2050, we'll all be starting to feel even more stronger effects that we're already feeling today. Elizabeth Carabine talking to Sai Devnet's Lou Del Bello about what climate science says about the future of SIDS and if it's possible for these countries to adapt to climate change. And Lou has joined me here in the studio. Hi there, Lou. Hi, John. So, Lou, what struck you most in your conversation with Elizabeth? So I was really impressed by the idea that people in the small island developing states are actually making plans to relocate their people elsewhere and they're buying lands in the Fiji in this case. So normally when we think about climate change and its impacts, uh, we think about unpredictable events such as drought, typhoons. But it's something that is likely to happen, but we are not sure if it will happen and when and with what intensity. Whereas in this case, we are 100% sure that this island will disappear. So uh, that's what really Victoria asks in her film, doesn't she? Uh, what people in Kiribati are going to do in 30 years' time? That's the point she's been making. Well, yeah, exactly. That's something that governments are well aware of because they're buying land. But uh, information to people is really uh, scarce. I don't feel that people are really informed and they have a clear picture of what's happening to their homeland. Though this, this doesn't seem the case when it comes to adaptation, um, Elizabeth Carabine uh, was suggesting that, uh, that people are actively doing something about this locally. Uh, yes, that's the case for some island, but not for all of them. In some of the smallest archipelagos, this won't help. And this is the case of Kiribati, but also the Marshall Island and others. But that's not the case then for all of them, or, or is it? Uh, no, well, the researchers believe that engaging people can actually have an impact, a positive impact, uh, even if um, there is need of governmental uh, actions to really help uh, and fund adaptation measures. Now, it looks like the SIDS have an important role to play on this front in themselves because they're a barometer, in a sense, of what can happen um, in the future elsewhere. Yes, another example is marine biodiversity. Uh, so, for example, Elizabeth told me that uh, coral reefs are feeling the impact of small biological modifications such as acidification of the oceans right now. But we can't really see the effects yet, though in a few years' time the impacts will be very quick and will be irreversible. So it's, it's as if tiny changes are kind of piling up, is that right? Yeah, exactly. I think of it as a tipping point. And once you reach this tipping point, uh, the chain reaction is triggered and there's no way to stop it. So, Lou, I believe that you also reported on one example of a project that aims at developing adaptation strategies, uh, whilst at the same time gathering information on the impact of, of climate change. Tell us about that. Yes, I paid visit to Ilan Kelman. He's reading Risk, Resilience and Global Health at University College London in the UK. And he told me about a project that brings together the people from the SIDS and people from the Arctic regions. And he also has a different perspective on the issue of climate migration. Let's have a listen. 
I've been very fortunate to have co-directed a long-term program called Many Strong Voices, MSV. And what that does is it brings together Arctic peoples with peoples from the SIDS, a small island developing states. So the SIDS are several dozen small countries and territories, mainly in the tropics, who have common development challenges. They have banded together to recognize that they face a lot of common challenges, of which climate change is the most prominent. And at the Montreal COP in 2005, they recognized that many of those challenges were similar to what the Arctic Indigenous peoples were facing. So the Arctic Indigenous peoples got together with the SIDS and said, we need our voices to be heard. They are relevant voices. They have a lot to offer. Let's make them many strong voices. We were very fortunate that the government of Norway stepped in and said, this Arctic SIDS link, it makes sense. So they have kindly provided a lot of funding over the years in order to ensure that the Arctic and SIDS peoples act on climate change and get that message across. That means that we have been doing capacity building, helping Arctic and SIDS peoples attend the COPs and have influence as well as other meetings. It has also involved original scientific research. We are fortunate to have a long list of publications and then the third major component is communications and networking. So we have been extremely fortunate to have the Minister of Energy and Environment from the Seychelles as one of our key partners, and he is also an author on the IPCC. In that manner, we learn from the Arctic peoples. We learn from the islanders. And we hope that we also give something back through building capacity and learning from that, through publishing science and then applying that science in the communities to help deal with climate change, and finally ensuring that the world does not forget the people being most harmed by climate change, but actually learns the lessons and tries to apply it to dealing with this huge problem of climate change. Can you give us an example of one project that has been carried out within the bigger initiative? An example of a specific and significant project is related to migration. Within the context of the Government of Norway's funding, we also received a project from the Norwegian Research Council to examine migration from two low-lying archipelagos, both in the Indian Ocean. The first is the sovereign state of the Maldives. The second are islands off the south coast of India called Lakshadweep. And what we find is that there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a lot of exaggeration regarding migration and climate change. So there was a film produced which had dramatic red arrows coming out of all these low-lying places as if hundreds of thousands of people were suddenly going to move into the northern lands to escape climate change in the rising seas. That proves not to necessarily be the case. And also, a lot of times, the people on the ground, the people who are affected, are not asked directly, what do you think of climate change? How do you link climate change and migration? So we decided we had to start asking these questions. We've gone into both archipelagos and simply sat down with people in the communities and asked those questions. Do you think of migrating? Is it an opportunity? Is it a difficulty? Are you worried about climate change? We're right now in the process of analyzing that data and trying to come up with the answers as well as policy and practice solutions. But it really shows that sometimes looking at the media headlines does not give the full answer because we're finding that there are many subtleties and many differences in how the people affected perceive these issues on the ground. What do you think will be the role 
of the small developing states within the international negotiations on climate change. What is their importance in uh, the global environment and for the future of the planet as well? The role of the SIDS in the international negotiations has been very prominent and very passionate. There is a group called AOSIS, Alliance of Small Island States, which has done wonderful, wonderful, inspiring work throughout all of the COPs, the climate change negotiations. They've ensured that their interests match the world's interests, and they've pushed as hard as they can to get an international legally binding agreement on climate change, which is substantive. Unfortunately, many of the powerful countries, those which have caused climate change, have not permitted that agreement to be signed. So the small island states have been inspiring in the work that they've done, but it is exceedingly frustrating that we still do not have that agreement. So where do we go from here? Well, there is no doubt that these communities will have to adapt. And even though they have not produced extensive greenhouse gas emissions, they are also willing to mitigate, and very much to link climate change adaptation and mitigation. We are doing our best to support them, but in supporting them, it's amazing how much we learn. Because sadly, climate change is no longer about these islanders out there, someone else who's being affected. What the islanders are experiencing now is what we are going to have to deal with in the future. London, Manhattan, other low-lying coasts, low-lying cities in the rich countries, they're going to be affected in exactly the same way as the islanders are being affected now. So through many strong voices, I'm doing my best to assist the islanders on their own terms in ter for their communities to deal with climate change. But I'm learning immensely. And what I see them doing is what I need to apply in London because what the small islands are facing now is what we are going to face in the future. So that was Lou talking to Ilan Kelman about the role of small island developing countries in global climate science. Well, Lou is still with me. Lou, uh, how will SciDev.net follow up on these and other climate change related issues in the months to come? Well, this is a very exciting moment for science and international politics. So last month we had the UN global meeting in New York where representatives from countries from all over the world gathered to renew their commitment to climate mitigation and adaptation. But in December, we will have another very important meeting in Lima, in Peru, uh, where we will attend the 20th Conference of Parties of the United Nations. Well, Lou and others from the SciDev.net reporting team will be there to report on the negotiations. And until then, you can follow our coverage of climate change on the web at SciDev.net. Follow us on Twitter at SciDevNet, that's the handle, or you can go to the SciDev.net Facebook page. listening to the SciDev.net podcast with me, John Escombe. Well, after talking about what's next on SciDev's agenda with Lou, I'm joined in the studio by Juan Casas Buenas, SciDev.net's training coordinator, who has some updates himself. Hello, Juan. Hello, John. So what's coming up in your part of uh, SciDev over the coming months? Um, so SciDevNet um, has just launched an award to promote investigative uh, journalism in the global south. Um, so we're going to be selecting the best proposal uh, for investigative stories. 
and we're going to give the winners all the support um, that they need in order to develop their projects. Why would anybody want to apply for the award? Um, well, I think it's um, a very unique opportunity. Um, we, we know that in-depth um, investigations take time. Um, they take lots of energy and money as well. So our winners will receive a cash prize of um, £3,500 um, plus support from experts in science journalism. So can you give us a flavour of the type of investigative journalism that you're looking for? Yeah, um, so for example, uh, earlier this year uh, we commissioned two films um, on the impact of um, mining uranium around the town of Arlit in uh, Niger. Um, the, the journalist who carried out this investigation, Himadou Amadou, um, he investigated claims by Greenpeace um, and local activists um, that the French industrial company Aviva had contaminated the local environment um, and that people, um, local people around the area were getting ill because of uh, radioactive pollution. Uh, so, you know, the, this journalist, he interviewed uh, many of the stakeholders, so uh, people who lived around there, doctors, uh, representatives from Arriva. It was a very balanced piece like that. Um, it addresses environmental issues, um, but most importantly, the, the implications it had for the developing country in question, so in this case, Niger. Now, who can apply for uh, this uh, award, if we can call it that? Um, so, uh, as long as you're based in a non-OECD country, um, if you have a, a track record of uh, reporting original stories in print, broadcast or online, um, then you can apply. Um, and also, you need, you need to be employed um, or you need to freelance for a media outlet. So, how do you actually apply? Is there a form somewhere that I can fill in? Yeah, so um, on our website, um, I think there will be a, a link um, attached to this podcast uh, where you can um, find the application form and guidance. It's also in our notice board um, section on the website. But what makes a good application? We're looking for um, something that's focused on science and development. Um, I think that's obvious. Um, and then we want it to be original in nature, if, if possible. Um, so if it's groundbreaking, that's fantastic. Um, although we know that not all pieces of investigative journalism have to be groundbreaking, as long as they're advancing work that has been previously done, that's also great. So what happens once I submit my application? We'll judge the submissions um, according to you know this criteria that I've just touched on. And we're going to shortlist three candidates um, for a second stage. Um, this final winner, so there's one final winner, um, they'll be notified on the 12th of um, December. And then uh, after that, we'll get the ball rolling for the investigation. So that's when all the support will begin um, and the journalist will be able to, to start carrying out this investigation. So it's very exciting. Well, it, it certainly sounds very exciting. Juan, thanks very much for, for coming in and good luck to the candidates. And we're looking forward very much to receiving the entries. OK, well, that's it for this month's podcast. Remember to stay connected with SciDev.net for all the latest news and views on global development. It's been great to be with you again. We're back again next month. So until next time, it's goodbye from me, John Escombe, and the rest of the team here at SciDev.net. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>